You're listening to a live recording from Westside Church in Bend, Oregon. Thanks for joining us. It's great to have you joining us online and for those of you in the crowd as well here uh, live. As we're doing this hybrid model, I just want to let you know that I'll be speaking to the camera most of the time, but that doesn't mean I don't recognize that you're in the room. I just have a lot more people that are watching online than are in the room. So uh, FYI on that. And also uh, for those of you that are here uh, we're going to be doing a little bit more worship at the, after we close the service, um, and so just F, just kind of don't don't take off uh, right away if you're here. And thank you, home churches, for making this part of your focus in being uh, here on a Sunday uh, once a month or so. And for those of you that are watching online, um, I'm really uh, grateful for this technology that we have to be able to connect. Uh, in this way. It's not the preferred way necessarily, but I just know that there's thousands of people every weekend that are watching and being ministered to by the word. And uh, we're launching a series in the book of Joel today, and I'm super excited about this series. Um, But before we dive in, I wanted to speak to something that, um, that that uh, I've been hearing kind of around town, around the region, um, and usually, you know, I typically don't respond to rumors because um, there's a lot of them, and <laughs> there's no reason to respond to every one of them, but this particular rumor actually has started to affect some good people in our church who are just getting a little confused about what we believe here at Westside, and so you're all excited about what I'm about to say right now because I, I, I did a pretty good job of setting that up, and, uh, and so it's about regarding what we believe about the Old Testament. And uh, I heard from a handful of people, good friends, pastors in our city, different, different people like, hey, I hear Westside doesn't believe in the Old Testament anymore. And I'm like, what? <laughs> huh, that's interesting. And so um, it's, it's starting to breed some confusion, actually, in some people in our church. And so I just want to reiterate um, what we believe, not in a kind of a defensive posture, but more of a, another way of teaching about how we view the entirety of Scripture um, first, we have a high value for all of Scripture. Um, we believe it's God-breathed, and it is profitable uh, for us, uh, all of Scripture. And um, as we read and interpret the Old Testament specifically, um, w- the way we do it at Westside is we, we interpret the Old Testament always, always, every single time, through the lens of Jesus. Um, so it's almost like we work backwards. So, you know, when I became a Christian, I, you know, when I said, when I, you know, somebody said, you need to read the Bible. And so where do you start when you read a book? You start at the beginning, right? You start, and so the beginning of our Bible is Genesis chapter one. But that's not actually where we should start as Christians. We should start in Matthew chapter one, which is the description of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the one that the entirety of scripture has proclaimed and then read about the gospels and then work backwards and read through the Old Testament and you see the the mark of Jesus everywhere throughout the Old Testament and the Old Testament becomes even more alive uh, because of Christ and his work on the cross and in the resurrection. And so to fully, to, to more fully understand the work of Jesus in the New Testament, we have to understand the Old Testament. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there, and, uh, and I just love gossip. It's just such an awesome thing in the church, um, and, uh, and so um, let's counteract that with truth and, um, and communicate uh, what we really believe. Well, uh, let's dive into this series. God led us to do this series in the book of Joel months ago. I was praying at the beginning of the year, and I felt like God wanted us uh, in the fall to do a prophetic book. Um, and I didn't know at the time which book we were going to do. And as we got closer and got into the COVID season, the pandemic, all that's been happening, the, the hurricanes, the fires, the racial tensions, um, I just I continue to be led to this book um, because of where we're at in our world. And I wonder if you've ever wondered, as I have wondered sometimes, where is God in the middle of this pandemic? 
Where is God in the middle of this, of, of, our, of, our, of our, the tensions that we're feeling? Where is God? Or maybe you thought, is God, maybe God's punishing us or our nation for disobedience. And maybe you thought, um, well, how do, we, how do we live as Christians in a, in a world like this uh, towards others during disaster and injustice? And this book speaks to all of those things. This book's going to show us how to have hope in the midst of the suffering that we're experiencing, that this book's gonna show us that God will not allow evil to reign forever um, and that all things are being made new. They're being made right. And so as we dive in today, I wanna, we're just gonna kind of give you an overview um, of the book of Joel uh, very quickly and, uh, and a resource for you. Uh, one of the things that we're offering is uh, the Bible Project has some great resources on the book of Joel. And uh, we're gonna continue to have home church questions, but we're also going to provide a resource for you that you can find at Right Now Media um, and uh, westsidechurch.org slash Joel. Um, there will be some resources available there. So mark that, kind of write that uh, link down. Um, and speaking of the Bible Project, um, they have an amazing overview of the first book, half, first half of the book of Joel. And we're going to watch that today. And then we'll watch the second half uh, of that uh, Bible Project video in a few weeks. So watch this. And puzzling. Joel is unique among the prophets for a few reasons. First of all, there's no explicit indication of when this book was written. It's most likely the period of Ezra and Nehemiah after the return from the exile because he mentions Jerusalem and the temple, but there doesn't seem to be any kings. Also unique is that Joel is clearly familiar with many other scriptural books. He alludes to or quotes from the prophets Isaiah, Amos, Zephaniah, Nahum, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, even the book of Exodus. And this is connected with the last unique feature, and that's that Joel never accuses Israel of any specific sin. So like many of the other prophets, he announces that God's judgment is coming to confront Israel's sin, but he never says why. And that's most likely because Joel assumes that like him, you have been reading the books of the prophets, and so you already know all about Israel's rebellion. Now, altogether, these three features help us understand this fascinating little book, that Joel is a biblical author who was himself immersed in earlier biblical writings. And his reflection on them helped him make sense of the tragedies of his day, but also they gave him hope for the future. Let's dive in and we'll see how this book works. In chapters 1 and 2, Joel focuses on the day of the Lord. This is a key theme in the prophets, and it describes events in the past when God appeared in a powerful way to save his people or confront evil. Think about the plagues in the book of Exodus. But the prophets saw in these past events pointers to a future time when God would again confront evil among his people, but also among the nations and bring salvation to the whole world. And so here in chapters 1 and 2, Joel has brought two parallel poems together that focus on this theme. So chapter 1 is about a past day of the Lord. He begins by announcing a recent disaster that a locust swarm has devastated Israel. And his description of the swarm recalls the day of the Lord against Egypt. Remember the eighth plague from Exodus chapter 10. Except this time, the locusts are being sent against Israel. And so Joel calls on the elders and the priests to lead the people in repentance and prayer. And then Joel actually himself repents along with all of the priests. 
Chapter 2 comes alongside, and it has the same poetic design and flow of thought. So Joel announces another day of the Lord, except this time it's future, not past. It's an imminent disaster coming on Jerusalem. And he begins describing what seems like another wave of locusts, but he uses military and cosmic imagery. So the locusts become God's army, like cavalry and soldiers that are marching and destroying everything in their path. And the sun is darkened, and the earth quakes, and Joel says, the day of the Lord, it's dreadful. Who can endure it? And so once more, Joel calls on the people to pray and repent. And he says how? To rend your hearts, not your garments, and return to your God. In other words, Joel knows that repentance can be just a show that you put on to get out of trouble. And he says God's not interested in that. He wants genuine change for his people to stop their selfishness and evil. And then Joel says why Israel should repent. Because God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and he's full of love. He's quoting here from the book of Exodus about how God forgave Israel after they made the golden calf. And from that story, Joel learned that God's mercy and love is more powerful than his wrath and judgment. And so he leads the priests in acts of repentance and prayer, asking God to spare his people. Then right after these two poems, the scene shifts, and we have a short narrative about God's response to the repentance of Joel and the people. So God was filled with passion for his land, and he had pity on his people. And then God says he's going to reverse the devastating effects of this day of the Lord and turn it from judgment into salvation. So first he's going to defeat the threatening invaders, which were presumably the locusts, and he's going to turn them all away to their own ruin. Then he's going to restore the devastated land and bring it back to life, making it abundant once more. And finally, God says he's going to bring his divine presence among his people. It will become real and accessible to everyone. Wow, you would think that uh, Joel is like six chapters long, but that uh, was just through chapter two, actually. So it's only three chapters, the book, and today we're going to look at chapter one. Joel chapter one, verse one says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, or I might say Joel every once in a while because we have a guy on staff named Joel, uh, the son of Pethuel. And the, jo- the name Joel means the Lord is God. And, and Joel, like other prophets, was commissioned to call uh, the people back to worship uh, God. And he did this by declaring the word of the Lord. All right. And these prophets were constantly calling the people of God back to God whenever they strayed from his path. Um, they would help us. These prophets would help us um, interpret historical events, things that happened in the, in the flow of, of the world at the time and, and, and do it in light of God's word to help people understand God's will. And so I've noticed a couple of things um, in this season, that few of us are taking the time to ask, what might God be saying to us through the pandemic? What, 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 what is God trying to get, is he trying to say something to us? Is he trying to get through to us, through the fires, through the floods, through the hurricanes? Sometimes we think God speaking through something is the same as God causing something. And that's not true, and so often we don't listen to his voice in moments like these. Um, what is God saying to us? And, but what we do often do is listen to a bunch of other voices that are telling us, trying to interpret 
what's going on around us? What's the reason for it? And you have the optimists, you know, everybody, I love the optimists. This isn't going to blast. This isn't going to last. Just be brave. It's going to be okay. I just love those people. And then you have the pessimists who I try to, I've, I've, I've unfollowed so many pessimists on Facebook recently. It's going to get worse. There's no escape. <laughs> it's like, oh, thank you so much. People I love the most, um, and there's a lot of them in the church, are the conspiracy theorists. There's just something going on we don't know about. Watch out. And then you got the scoffers. Yeah, whatever. I don't really care, you know. Joel doesn't do any of that. He calls us, and he actually calls specific people in chapter one to listen to, to reflect on, and to turn back to God. First, he speaks to the elders. Check it out. He he speaks to the elders in verse two. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all the inhabitants of the land. So all the citizenry as well. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? He's trying to get our attention. He's trying to say, has this ever happened before? I mean, we, the, the word that people have been using is unprecedented during this season, right? There's this sense of like, this has never happened before. We have never been down this path in any of our lifetimes. You look back a generation, even two, you see we haven't been here before. And Joel's trying to get our attention. The pandemic and all the natural disasters, the ongoing discussions around racial injustice, it's never been like this before. We're in new territory. And then he speaks uh, to those who enjoy wine, which I know is a lot of West Siders. So verse five. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. (laughs) And wail all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Now, you gotta dig a little bit in this to kind of try to figure this out, but to weep into well because the wine you love is gone, what does that mean, right? Well, having your own vineyard, and, and, and it was a symbol of like success and contentment. And the reality, I think, of what Joel's trying to say here is that you can't even depend on your own successes in this moment. And then he speaks to farmers. Look at verse 11. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. There's this sense in which it's like all gone. We've trusted in our own ingenuity, in our own creativity, in our own work ethic, and it's, nothing, it's not going our way. And then he speaks to the priest, verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Everything and everyone has been impacted. And everything that was once familiar, that that we put our trust in, can't be trusted anymore. Our success our economy, our own ingenuity and creativity, our government, even the institutional church. We're all in this together. And this pandemic, the chaos, the political and cultural turmoil hasn't revealed anything new in our lives, but it has uncovered some things in our hearts that have always been there. The need to control, the desire for autonomy, the sacred alliances that we've made with political parties, our entitlement mentality, the comfort and ease of life, all of it 
comes from this idea that we don't need God, that we can do life without him, that we can figure this on our, out on our own, and we've drifted. The church has drifted. I'm not even just, I'm not talking about our nation. I'm talking about the people of God. We've drifted. The elderly, the citizenry, the, those who drink too much, the farmers, the priests, we've all drifted. We've all lost our way in some fashion. And I think the pandemic, for me at least, has opened my eyes to see how far we've drifted away from our dependence upon God. So how should we respond? Well, in ancient cultures, they responded to natural disasters with an immediate response to repent, immediate call to repent. They would, that's what we see in, in Joel, and that's what they would do. They would draw an instant parallel between um, the disaster and their own sin. They would, they would immediately believe that it was God's judgment upon them, the, the natural disasters, because of their sin. And so uh, so as we see in Joel, they would weep and they would wail. They would actually rend their garments. They would throw dust on their, on their heads. They would cry out to God for mercy and relent for him to relent his judgment. And it's helpful for us, I think, to realize that the prophets spoke to a particular people in a particular moment in history regarding a, a particular situation, and their application for them was really obvious. And while every prophetic book has something to say to us, I believe that it, we have to realize it wasn't written to us. But, and so we always have to look at the application for our lives through the lens of how does Jesus fulfill and bring clarity to the prophetic word? How does his work interpret this, this book to our lives? And as we study Joel together for these next six weeks, one of the most powerful messages I think we will see is that what God could do versus what God has chosen to do. And I think we have to keep coming back to that question. What, what could God do because of our sin, because of our drift, versus what he has chosen to do? In Joel chapter 1, verse 14, let's go there. This is what they do. They consecrate a fast. They call a solemn assembly. They gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And they cried out to the Lord, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction uh, from the Almighty, it comes. It is, not, it is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. So they choose to repent. They choose to turn their hearts back to God because of the, 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 the locusts, the famine, the destruction, the disruption. It wasn't enough for them just to humble themselves and lament outwardly, by the way. They also had to seek God inwardly. See, I think we, in the church in the, in the United States, we've taken our blessings for granted. We've drifted from following God with our whole heart. And I believe that God has allowed this moment in our history to call his people to return, to seek his face, to humble ourselves, to turn from our wickedness. 
The Lord said to Solomon after he built this grand monument to God's presence, the temple, which by the way, the remnant is still in Jerusalem today, the temple of Solomon. I've heard your prayer, God says, and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or I commanded the locusts to devour the land or I sent pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and their land. Now, because of Jesus, what, what Joel prophesied and what he said to Solomon, he has done. He, it is finished. The work of God to forgive, to restore is complete. We have to walk into it. We have to live into it. Because Jesus suffered once and for all for our iniquities, we can have confidence that God will forgive us and heal us. He is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. I think it's always hard for us to understand the why of tragedy, um, the why of suffering. Why do good people suffer? Have you ever asked this? Why do good people suffer, suffer and evil people flourish? We, we don't get it, and we, should, and we should be really careful that we don't attribute the pandemic or the fires or the floods or the hurricanes or any type of suffering to God punishing us for our iniquities because he punished one person forever for our iniquities. And he does not punish us any longer for our sin. He put all of that on the person of Jesus. Matter of fact, for us to even declare that God is punishing us today for our sins is to diminish the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But rather, we as the people of God in particular should return to our foundation. We should return to our first love. We should return to the giver of all good things and allow this moment to bring us back, to call us back to God. To allow this moment to teach us, to reform us more into the image of Christ. And so, because of that, our response should be one of repentance, which simply means to turn around, to go back to your first love. He's not impressed with sackcloth or sacrifice. King David actually wrote, after his sin with Bathsheba was uncovered, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I think the disruptions that we're experiencing have brought to the surface our need to repent, our need to return back to God. They have revealed our hearts and found them wanting. We have put our faith and our hope in other places and in other people and God is calling us on it. And through Christ, he is urging us to return to him today. I want to invite the worship team back up and 
You know, I love the story of Jonah. Jonah's another prophet in the Old Testament. And, and I just, I just, he just, he didn't want to preach to this, a city. The name of the city was Nineveh, really um, secular city. They had no desire to follow God at all. And Jonah is, just simply doesn't want to preach to Nineveh. God call, says, I, I want you to go and preach to Nineveh. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. And if you remember the story, this is the prophet that got swallowed up by a whale because he was fleeing from going the opposite direction of Nineveh and, and God brought turmoil on the ship that he was sailing in. And so they threw Jonah overboard when they found out it was his fault. And so he got, anyways, eaten by a whale. And, uh, and then guess where the whale spit him up on? Yeah, the shores of Nineveh, right? And so, so he reluctantly preaches to this evil city. And do you remember what happened? They turned back to God. They turned to God and they repented. And it, and it kind of makes Jonah really mad. And listen to Jonah's prayer. Um, I call it the angry prayer of an unrepentant Christian. Jonah chapter four, verse two, he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew, listen to this, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. <laughs> Jonah knew who God's character was and what God what God's character demanded that he do. And so he fled. He didn't want to preach to Nineveh because he knew that if he did, God is gracious and compassionate and kind and would, and would, would, and would receive anyone who turns their heart back to God. See, throughout the Old Testament, we see the signs of why Jesus came. Matter of fact, Jesus told that those who are looking for a miracle to prove that God sent Jesus, the only sign that they're gonna get is the sign of Jonah. See, if you're wondering where God is in the pandemic, if you're wondering why God hasn't done anything for you, if you're wondering where he is, look to Jesus. He is the perfect example. He is um, God made flesh to dwell with us. He took on our sin. He took on our shame. You don't have to look any further. You don't have to wonder why God isn't doing anything. He has done something already. And he calls us to walk in it. See, what God could do is, yeah, he could bring judgment and condemnation and punishment upon all of our heads because we all deserve it. But what he chose to do was to send himself in the form of man to love us, to forgive us, to welcome us, to create a pathway back to our creator. The prophets are constantly pointing us toward the heart of God, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. That God has chosen to show us kindness through Jesus as messed up as our world is should tell us something really powerful about the goodness of God. God's not punishing us. He's drawing us. God didn't come to fix us, but to be with us. So Jesus, our eyes are upon you. Our focus is on you.
leads us to repentance. It's not about feeling bad about ourselves, but about embracing the tender heart of God toward us and returning to him over and over and over again. So let's repent today and every day. Let's run back to Jesus, not because of how bad we are, but because of how good he is. Would you repeat this prayer after me if that's your heart? is to call out to God today to repent. Just repeat this, this simple prayer after me. Jesus, we return to you. We repent. We confess our sin of self-reliance. We have trusted in our own strength and it has failed us. We cry out to you to heal our hearts and to heal our land. We need you now more than ever. Our hearts have wandered. We have lost our way. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Restore to us a right heart and a right mind. In Jesus' name.